You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am really excited to have Faye Kellerman on the show with me today. She has an amazing new book. It's called The Lost Boys, and this is the 26th uh, book in the Decker Lazarus uh, series. And I'll tell you what, as a longtime uh, lover of thrillers and crime fiction, um, it, this series has been a mainstay throughout my my reading life. And uh, I'm so happy to see uh, that these characters are still going strong 26 books in and uh, happy to see that uh, that you're still doing so well with it. Uh, welcome to the show, Faye. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Faye, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, I was a storyteller from way back. Uh, Since I was a little, little girl, I used to make up stories. Everything I'd see, or even before I could read, if I saw a movie, I would pretend I was that character. I had a small house that had a small backyard, but it also had a little small front yard that was covered with shrubbery. And I used to be behind the bushes making up my own stories. So much so that when my grandmother came out from the Midwest into California, the land of fruits and nuts, she said to my mother, is this child normal? And my mother, (laughs) God bless her, said, leave her alone. She's just playing with her stories. So those stories took a long, long time to percolate and actually come into books, but it was something that I used to do. I used to make up stories. I used to make up songs. Um, Whatever I felt like doing, I had a very, very vivid imagination. I love that. I think I've heard you tell that story before about your grandmother and and wondering, uh, you know, if you were okay or not. And and thank (laughs) you. Thank God that your that your mother took up for you. And um, do, do you think that your parents or your your mother specifically, or, uh, uh, or or were there any other adults in your life that recognized this storytelling gene? If we if we get to call it that. Honestly, I was the youngest of the kids, and I think my mother was just so happy that I was entertaining myself and out of her hair. She didn't want to upset the apple cart, so to speak. Um, I, like I said, I always had a very, very vivid imagination, but I was also a pretty good student. And nothing kills an imagination like formal education. I'm all (laughs) formal education. You need formal education. But uh, when you're really busy studying in school, it just kind of blanks out everything. You you can't do anything except doing that, especially me. I was a math major, believe it or not. And then I went on to dental school, but I really didn't think of myself as having any opportunity to be a writer until I met Jonathan Kellerman and uh, things clicked. That's uh, it, uh, of course, um, a, a path through dental school is how all great 
thriller writers get their start. <laughs> Everyone knows that. Um, <laughs> you learn a lot about surgery. And I'll uh, tell you what else dental school is very good for. When you go to the dentist, and anybody can relate to this, you don't want a dentist who's all of a sudden start looking for his tools while your mouth is wide open and you're in this uncomfortable position. So dental school, I was an organized person to begin with. Dental school taught me meticulousness and how to be organized before you even start the procedure. Other than that, not much overlap. Well, um, you know, other than uh, what you just mentioned about uh, your protagonist needing to be organized uh, and, and dental school reinforce that. Do you feel like you picked up any tools uh, that you as a writer use? Um, not just things that 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 your characters use, but uh, were there things that that you as a writer picked up from your formal education? Um, it thinking and learning takes time. You don't rush things. Sometimes if it doesn't come to you today, it'll come to you tomorrow. And of course, practice makes perfect. Um, whenever you sit down to write, and I'm sure many, many writers have told you that, we always kind of start with what we wrote the day before and start editing that. And that gets our minds thinking about moving forward. If you don't go back, your story's a little bit less um, continuous. It's a little less smooth. So we always kind of go back to where we were last the day before and clean that up a little bit. It not only provides continuity, but the stuff that you think is brilliant in first draft needs a lot of work. Uh, nothing I've ever read can be improved with some judicious editing. Sure. Um, Faye, did, did you go into dental practice? Actually, I didn't because I was six months pregnant with my son, who's now 42, um, when I graduated. I fully intended to go back to dentistry. You don't go to, den you don't go to dental school for self-actualization. I always say that. <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not the type of uh, career that you go to to learn things. It's the type of career you go to for a specific outcome. Right. And I was going to go back. Uh, and that's actually when I started making up stories. Again, because when you're with baby, um, there's a lot of downtime. So this was the first time in like 20, 25 years. I graduated at 26 that I really didn't have to stuff my brain with um, formal education, with things and facts that I had to give back tests or things or fact that I had to know in order to, you know, work on a patient. And my mind was suddenly clear. So this time I had all these thoughts and all these fun stuff and I started making up what ifs, but I had no idea what to do with it. It was just like daydreaming to me until um, I saw Jonathan, who had worked many years as a psychologist before he became a full-time writer. And I saw what Jonathan was doing. He was making up stories and putting them on paper. So I thought, okay, I'm making up stories. I'll put them on paper and I can call myself a writer instead of a daydreamer, which sounds a lot better. And that's exactly what I did. And it was a long road from just starting to write to actually realizing a fully formed fictional novel. But you have to start somewhere. And that's what happened. 
do you remember that first idea uh, that came to you that, uh, you know, when you when you started working on fiction again and allowing yourself to tell stories to yourself? Do, do you remember what that first idea was? I don't remember what the first idea is, but of course, The Ritual Bath, which was my first novel, was not my first novel in um, in my head and in actuality. It was my first published novel. And when you're working with your first published novel, you have no idea that it's your first published novel. So you kind of throw in whatever you think might attract some readers and uh, have interest to some readers. My first actual novel that never got published, thank God, uh, was kind of a coming of age story. And it never went anywhere, but I liked the characters very much. So what I did is once I got it into my series, they were teenage characters. Of course, at that time when I was studying to write, I was in my early 20s. And, you know, I wasn't that far away from my teen years. So I, you know, everybody starts with coming in age story. It's a mistake. You have to grow up from there. So I started writing that and the story was not the story that I could go out with, but the characters were very good. So when I wrote about teenagers in Justice, I knew what I wanted to do in that novel, and I knew I wanted to explore um, teenagers. And I said, you know, I don't have to invent them. I have them over there. I'll just cannibalize it out of this novel that never went anywhere and stick them into a new environment. And that's what I did. Love it. Um, at you have one of the uh, the longest running um, series um, that I uh, that I can name off the top of my head, and you've got these great characters um, that you uh, you know, have a uh, we we have a relationship you know as readers to these characters because we look forward to them coming out every year or so. Um, as a writer, um, tell me a little bit about the the relationship if we can use that, that sort of language, um, with, with Peter Decker and, and, uh, and, and Raina Lazar, uh, Lazarus, um, it's kind of an unfair question to say when you first started writing them, you know, did you know that it would turn into what it is now? Um, because rarely do we have that, that sort of insight in the beginning, but did you know there was something special about these characters and their relationship to each other? I knew that these were good characters to come uh, to come out with in a first novel and i knew that they had life beyond first novel other than that not too much the reason why i knew they were good characters is because rena came from the heart she came from a place that i know very well and decker was well thought out as well and when I threw the two of them together, as I said, when you're writing a first novel, you don't know it's a first novel. So I threw them together and then all of a sudden I had a single man and a single woman. I said, well, let's see what happens. And uh, as you say, 26 books later, they're, they're still alive and well. Um, it's interesting that you use the word relationship with your characters because you really do. They do talk to you. Sure. They uh, talk to you in your head, and um, they are very much alive to you in your head. 
and when they are written down on paper. And if you don't have a relationship with your characters, I don't think they're fully fleshed out. They have to be your friends. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, when we're talking about books and, and writing, this is one of the, the few places where it's safe to to talk about these imaginary characters talking to you. It's, right. it, it's really funny how they they really do take take on lives of their own. And they lead you to different places. Uh, you might think they're going to react this way, and then all of a sudden they react totally different. And you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You do control them, but you don't control them. Your subconscious has a lot of interplay with them. And um, they do, as I said, they do talk to you, but they do more than talk to you. They're like little tape recorders in your head when you're writing dialogue. And then all of a sudden you'll write some dialogue and you read it again and you hear Peter saying, I would never say that. Yeah, erase that. And they <laughs> said, you're right. You, you don't talk that way. And these characters uh, have evolved. Uh, they have become, I won't say different people, but more mature people. To keep a series fresh, you can't change your characters drastically. But what you can do with any kind of character is you can throw them into novel situations and see how they react. And in that way, all sorts of different attributes and traits come out that you didn't know they had. Right. And and uh, it's an interesting thing because um you know, when we when we see a character on the page that we like or that we can connect with, um, there there has to be something unique about them to make them stand out from the crowd. But they also need to be, uh, you know, um, close enough to us that we can relate to them. Um, what what are some of the ways that these two characters are relatable to you? They relate because I think they're fully blood flushed out human beings. They have um, good points, they have bad points, they stumble, they fall, they love, they get angry, um, they run the gamut of emotions. And it has to be that way. Peter and Rena are, I think, especially interesting because they have had a long-term marriage in addition to having in this long-term series. And their marriage has not gone stale. Um, they work at it. Uh, and I think people who are in relationships are, can relate to the ups and downs of anything long term. Uh, they're just great. They, they are people who might be your next door neighbors. There's people who might be a friend. Um, they're certainly good people. And that is a fun to write about because when you're writing crime fiction novels, oftentimes there's um, a villain who's not so perfect, and it's always fun to compare and contrast them against other lives out there. Um, I've often wondered, um, Faye, when, when you have um, a, a writer like you that has written such a vast body of crime fiction, um, most of the time when you meet them, uh, they're the sweetest, kindest people that you would ever meet, yet they can uh, envision such, uh, you know, such tales of, uh, 
of, of viciousness and uh and and uh, you come to the, the darker side of our human nature um and why why do you think it is that as readers um we love these types of stories is it because we get to experience them in the safety of our of our home and our reading chair uh and and kind of deal with the darker side of life without actually having to go through it uh, or what do you think i think that that's definitely a factor in it um and you're right uh thriller novels mystery writers especially the more intense and darker they are tend to be very very sweet i found so many helpful people uh along the way uh starting with you know the late sue grafton and and uh, uh harlan coven and lee chop they're all very nice people. Um, I find when I write about things that concern me or scare me, it's a cathartic experience. Um, I think readers feel the same way, exactly what you say. They can read about it from the safety of their chair, or they can explore things that they can't really explore by just reading a book or reading a paper. we can really get down to the nitty gritty and the nuances of a character and of a dark character and of a dark crime in a way that uh, even movies can't do it because movies cannot do internal thoughts, which is why my novels are hard to make into any sort of thing on a screen because so much of what happens in my novels are characters thinking uh, and analyzing, and you just really can't uh, convey that on a screen to go inside a person's head. So I think we're all very curious. The human nature makes us so that we're curious about other people. And we as writers get this wonderful opportunity to explore it and to present it to our readers who are wonderful in an entertaining manner. You don't want to make it like psych books. You want to make it entertaining. And that's always my goal, to write something interesting, but to take you away for a couple of hours. Sure. Uh, there's, there's one thing uh, about uh, you know, a long-running series. Uh, a lot of times the, the setting almost becomes a character in the book. And uh, you know, a couple of examples jump off uh you know the harry bosch of course is going to be in los angeles um walt longmire is going to be in uh in montana there's there's gonna you know the the american west it becomes a character in those books um you you did something um a few books ago and you moved this series from la which it had very much been uh been grounded in to upstate new york um how did that um, how did you address that? And did, do you think changing, uh, the, the setting, the location where your stories take place, did that open new doors and opportunities? And, uh, you, what, how did that affect you as the writer? Uh, very good question. First of all, when you write series characters, you kind of have a choice. You, how do you age them? Because obviously they're not quite aged in real time. Some people like Sue Grafton wrote them all within a certain period of time. So her character never uh, got older. The Kinsey Milhomes, uh, same as Agatha Christie's. 
their characters were pretty static in a certain time. Sure. For whatever reason it was, I chose to age my characters, probably because as they went along through life, as I went along through life, they went along through life. I had children, they had children. My children grew up to be teenagers, they dealt with teenagers. They fled the coop. My kids fled the coop. Now they're, they moved to upstate New York, and it's just the two of us kind of in an empty nest. Why did I do it? Uh, Decker was getting a little older. He had a very good position in uh, L.A. He was all the way up to, you know, a lieutenant. But he came to a conclusion in his life that he wanted something quieter. Of course, he didn't get it, but he wanted something quieter. They wanted to move closer to their children who are all back east. And as I said before, I couldn't really change him in Los Angeles because he was kind of set in a way. So I said, okay, let me drop them in upstate New York and see what happens when he's in this nice, quiet life. And my reason behind that is small towns usually stay, you know, quiet. Uh, They have their vandalism and they have their drunk calls and they have their breaking and entering and they have very light crime. But what happens when a really serious crime takes place there, a real serious homicide that is going to demand uh, serious detection? They're able to do it, but Peter's there. He's an old uh, homicide cop. He's going to take over. So I liked bringing him there. It was a new environment. Plus, I could inject a little bit of youth into the series. His new partner was a 24-year-old um, law student named T- uh, Tyler McAdams, who had uh, joined the police force just to make his father mad because his father wanted him to <laughs> become a lawyer. So he's he's still in Harvard Law School, and he's a little snot, and how he changes throughout the whole book, um, how he learns to um, adjust to a real world when he's been in this privileged academic setting for so long, how he changes from being a snot who doesn't know anything to being a really a real life police detective. So that was fun. And that's why I decided to move it. Rena wanted a quieter life and she didn't get it either, but we'll see what happens to them in the future. You say that that Peter and Reno, you know, wanted uh, a quieter life, and of course they don't get it. Um, and and that's why we keep coming back book after book is because we love to see how you torture Peter and Reno uh, book after book. And and uh, and um, wh- what does that say about us as readers that we love to see these people that we love so much, um, you know, tortured and and uh, go through all the gamut of emotions. I I don't know, but. Uh, uh, but this is a safe place to do that. You know, you love your family members and uh, once in a while they go through hard times and sometimes it's well-deserved that they go through hard times. <laughs> You're always there to kind of pick them up and reassure them that it'll get better. Uh, they were uh, all kind of interested. If you, if you just wrote a book about being nice all the time, it's not interesting. You have You have to put people through their uh, through their steps, through their trials, in order to bring out the character in them. Absolutely. So book 26, The Lost Boys, um, where where does this book find us? What's what's going on when we when we open uh, the beginning of the book? 
Page one, uh, they're looking for a lost man. He's developmentally delayed. They're very, very worried. He was on a field trip with his residential home and he disappeared at, at, in woodland areas at night, uh, which is very, very scary. So they're scouring the area for him, both in the small town of Greenbury and in the forest and in the woods beyond. I wanted to do something about missing persons. Uh, most missing persons cases end happily, but what happens when it doesn't? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but what happens when missing persons uh, go from being a day to a week, to a month, to a year? What kind of toll does this take on the family, the survivors, the people um, in the police force who are looking for them, the long-term effects of not knowing. Uh, this was something I wanted to explore. Faye, um, uh, yeah, a lot of times there will be real-life uh, issues that uh, that bleed over into uh, into thrillers, and it's fun to explore how things might have turned out or or how uh, how we might tackle a certain subject. Um, was there uh, was there a real life situation that uh, that made you think of of this storyline? I had the answer is I wanted to explore this situation. There was never a real life that was totally comparable. But as I was writing, and I was thinking of how this would be effective and how this would be affect people. I had this story when my kid was about seven or eight, Jesse, like it said, he's 41 right now, so you can tell how far off this was. And I, I wrote about it for uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, I took him, he had uh, a soccer game. He's eight years old, he played soccer. And his team was on the field and I said, Jesse, um, you stay here, you play your game. I'll be back way before the game ends. I have to run an errand. So I ran some stupid errand. I don't even remember. Came back. It was well before the game should have ended, but the field was empty. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to that in a minute. So all of a sudden, where's my kid? So I, I don't panic. I start looking around, but there's no one there. Then I start calling people. Have you seen Jesse? Did he go? I figured something must have happened and he went home with somebody. I called his friends and then I, I finally got the number of coach. I called the coach. I said, what happened? Oh, do you have, first of all, do you have Jesse? Because with each subsequent phone call where I was unsuccessful finding my son, I started getting panicky and panicky and panicky. Um, so I finally called the coach and he said, well, the team didn't have enough people. They were forfeited. At, forfeited. Everybody went home. I said, so where's my son? I said, surely you didn't leave him alone there. He's an eight-year-old kid. And he did. So uh, I was furious, but that wasn't my main concern. So my babysitter, I had two younger kids at home at the time. So my babysitter was about ready to go home. My, my husband was there. I said, Honey, the babysitter asked to leave. I can't find Jesse. He said, just wait at the park. I'll come meet you, and then you can go home. And that's what happened. And then he started looking for him, and then it was panic. We couldn't find him anywhere. It was the most 
frightening moment of my parental life. And this lasted for about an hour. I remember my husband rushing around, driving in a car, and a cop stopped him because he was speeding. And there was tears in I can't sign my son. And he said, well, sir, just slow down. I won't give you a ticket that time. Didn't offer to help look for the kid. Just, <laughs> just dismissed him on his way. So finally, finally, I was back home at this point. Uh, John uh, was scouring the area. He finally saw Jesse just sitting there on a grandstand watching a baseball game. Now, it, this was a huge, huge, huge part. And, uh, and you have to remember, this was the age cell phones before you know there was any sort of um you know instant communication we this was back at pay phones and i i don't even think car phones were very much the thing back then um so finally he found jesse and just was waiting for people but it was the most panic-stricken of moment of as i said of my parental life i don't think we even had illnesses of kids that that compared to how horrified I was. So I, I kind of drew upon that emotion. And what happens when these horrified emotions keep going day after day after day, as I'm sure they do when you have a missing person, you sure. don't know. And it just eats away at you and it erodes your life. And I, I wanted to talk to the survivors of, of what this is and what happened. So the book was as much about trying to find people as it was looking at the toll that this long-term uh, absence makes on um, the survivors, how your loved ones react. Because as we know, in crimes, there's the victim and then all the other ancillary victims that uh, live victims that uh, uh, are still very much part of the crime. Faye, after um, publishing as many books as you have and and uh, and being uh, in the business as long as you have, um, has uh, has your writing process changed over the years? Um, are are there things that you do now that that uh, that are uh, you know due to your your writing process refining or uh, is there technology that's available now that maybe there wasn't in the beginning that has changed your writing process? Uh, when I first started writing, I wrote by hand in spiral notebooks. Then I progressed to a typewriter, a selectric. Then I remember getting a first word uh, a processing program. It was called Einstein Writer, and it was on floppy disk. I had a double copy this computer. I still have it. I kept it. Um, so you can see how far back it goes. The process maybe has been made a little easier by um, all this newer technology. It certainly has, but it doesn't make you write any better. And it doesn't make you think any better. That's still a basic thing that you have to work out. What I find with a technology is you write faster, but maybe not necessarily better. Uh, but you can edit and you can be merciless, and that's a very, very good thing. Speaking of technology, what I find interesting in my book, since my first novel came out in 86, before, like I said, before cell phones, before computers, before DNA, is the methodology 
that has switched on how to solve crimes. Because now you can track people with phone towers, there's DNA, which sounds like 80% of cold cases, 90% of cold cases. Right. Um, and how that has impacted on the way Decker solves the crime. And it has. But the actual process of going through the crime and the human element has not changed. I love it. The new book is called The Lost Boys. And when you're hearing this, it's available everywhere uh, that, you, that you buy books in Kindle edition, uh, hardcover edition, or uh, audio book. Um, Faye, what do you think about the audio book um, uh, editions of your books? You know, audio is the largest growth market in publishing right now. Um, how have you seen that change? Uh, it has changed a lot, uh, especially now people are driving more. But I think the audio gives, it literally, not I think, it, it literally gives a voice to your characters. So it's kind of halfway in between that media, between seeing them on the screen and actually reading them and hearing it totally in your head. But when you do unabridged editions, they do abridged and unabridged editions, you still get the um, the internal thoughts. So it's, it's, it's great. And it doesn't surprise me that it is on a high growth uh, chart. Right. Well, The Lost Boys is available everywhere now. Go grab your copy. We'll put links to it in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for people uh, to grab. Faye, if people are just learning about you, God forbid, and and want to dig into all the amazing stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Um, um, my books are in print and online everywhere. Knowable, Amazon, you name it, they're there. Um, feel free to download it. Feel free to come in the middle of the series. If um, the Lost Boy really piques your interest, you can go back to the beginning to the uh, ritual bath and there's 25 books waiting for you. My fans are the greatest. I love them. And uh, I just hope I can keep entertaining them for many, many years to come. Absolutely. Faye, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. We're going to send everyone to pick up a copy of the new book and to dig into your amazing back catalog. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you, Hank. It's been my pleasure. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises, 
We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com <laughs>